As usual, we're having our round of challenges this morning, first with the uh, sound system and also the heater. So uh, I notice Ken's not up here. He must be downstairs. So uh, somebody who's a deacon needs to be a little temperature sensitive because last week it wasn't cutting off. And when it starts hitting about 65 or 66, Mike, why don't you just get up and go turn it off just in case uh, it doesn't cut off because we don't want to go from uh, uh, an ice box to a sauna in 30 minutes, which will happen. Yeah, well, there, I know there's a lot of hot air up here, but Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study God's word, ready to apply the objectivity we have in our souls from past studies of the word, so that we may face, uh, honestly face the Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Father, we do thank you that we can come together this morning to fellowship around the teaching of your word, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and it is the psalmist who said that it is in your light that we see light. It is only when we understand your word accurately and that we are letting our thinking be shaped by your word that we can accurately understand our own lives, our own thinking, that we can accurately evaluate the circumstances of our lives and the circumstances of the world around us. Father, we pray that we would be, have the courage to study your word today, to face it honestly and objectively, and to apply the things that we need to. Father, we continue to pray for our nation, for our leaders, for our president, for all of the many challenges that face this administration. We pray that you would give them wisdom and courage and that you would restrain those who would oppose wise decisions that would protect and secure this nation's future. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we would be challenged by it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 7. We continue our study of marriage, love, sex, marriage, and divorce in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is specifically designed to answer certain questions that the Corinthian congregation had 
asked the Apostle Paul. So it's not an exclusive uh, answer to every question, every situation, and every problem that might be faced in marriage or in the arena of divorce. I think that's one of the basic problems that people have when they come to the Scriptures in both 1 Corinthians 7 and in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 is that they think that these two passages answer every question, every situation, rather than providing a framework or an overall um, frame of reference for being able to handle whatever problems we face in life. Now, we saw last time in the first five verses that Paul is dealing with a particular problem in Corinth, and that was the the idea that had been brought into the church from the human viewpoint thinking of the culture around them, that somehow celibacy had superior spiritual value than sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. We're not talking about celibacy outside of marriage, that it was a given. But we're talking about the fact that they had picked up this erroneous idea and they were applying it in the context of marriage. Now, the problem that we all face is that we come to the Word of God with a certain amount of cultural baggage called, by the Bible, worldliness or cosmic thinking. We come to the Scriptures with a lot of different ideas about what makes a successful marriage, what marriage is all about, what family is all about, what parenting is all about, what child-rearing is all about. And as believers, we have to be willing to honestly look at our own lives, at our own thinking, to look at the background we have. Most people get their ideas of marriage from watching their parents and observing how their parents live and operate. But if your parents weren't truly applying the word, I don't care how much they might have talked about the Bible or claimed to be Christian, if your parents are not accurately applying the word, and none of our parents actually did, I mean, they may have tried, some might have done a better job of it than others, there, there were always areas that could be found wanting. But unfortunately what happens is we often shape our ideas because of those early uh, childhood experiences, the formative years growing up in a home. That is our model. That's our frame of reference. But when we come to the Scriptures, we have to honestly and objectively evaluate not only that background, but all the other ideas we picked up along the way that may not be biblical. So we have to exchange that thinking which is human viewpoint thinking, and will never produce a successful Christian marriage. Now, it may produce a successful marriage. There are a lot of unbelievers out there who have successful marriages, but they're not successful Christian marriages. They're not the kind of marriages that are based on the precepts and principles of God's Word that in turn glorify God in the angelic conflict. At the conclusion last time, I took an overall summary of marriage based on a metaphor or analogy from dancing. We looked at the fact that in couples dancing you see a perfect metaphor of the kind of teamwork and, the, and role distinction that you have in, uh, in marriage. So that that is an excellent way of understanding how a husband and a wife are to relate to one another. In the context of biblical commands that the man is the leader in the home and the wife is the assistant or responder to the man's leadership. And too often today there is such a reaction to this. There are so few people in our culture, and this goes back maybe for a couple of generations, that accurately understand 
what authority and leadership are all about. The problem, one problem with leadership is that if it's overemphasized with an absence of love and an absence of humility and an absence of grace orientation, it will always deteriorate into some kind of tyranny. And too often what people hear, I don't care how much you can couch your terminology in Scripture with discussions of grace and love and humility and giving and servanthood and all of these other factors, some people have come out of backgrounds where all they saw was abuse. They saw fathers beating their mothers. Sometimes they saw mothers beating their fathers. They see all of this in their background, and you can talk to your blue in the face, and all they ever hear when you talk about authority is tyranny. That's their whole frame of reference. And I don't know if that's true for any of you or anyone listening to this, but if that's true, you need to take a real hard look at the fact that that's your, your human viewpoint baggage that you need to get rid of because uh, authority is not bad. It is inherently good. There's authority within the Trinity. There was authority before there was ever sin in the, in the world. And authority is not something bad. What happens is because of the fall, because of the sin nature, because of arrogance in the human race and self-centeredness, what happens is authority is perverted and dis- distorted and destroyed by people who are using it for their own personal agendas and have no real concept of what love and grace and humility are all about. That's why I like to use the dancing metaphor, but even in dancing you often see people who play out on the dance floor their own concepts of authority and response and leadership. And I used the example last time of how you'll frequently find uh, some woman who has bought into a feminist agenda, and she just can't follow a man leading her in dancing at all. I mean, she is just almost worthless on the dance floor because she's trying to be the one to dictate where everything's going and how this guy dances. On the other hand, you see men who have... Uh, who play out their ideas of authority in in their leadership, in their leading on the dance floor, and either it's too strong and overbearing or it's too weak and and, uh, it's barely noticed, and the partner has no idea where the man wants things to go. So that's why we started off with that and, and recognizing that it's simply an analogy, but it's an excellent analogy because marriage is a teamwork. It is a teamwork where each individual has a specific role and specific areas of responsibility. It takes time to work those things out together so that they can eventually produce something that is a product of grace, beauty, and style. Sometimes it just takes a short time, sometimes a longer time. A lot of things deal with uh, are related to the spiritual maturity of the two uh, people involved, their personalities and the trends of their own sin natures, so that you have some couples, because of the trends of their sin nature, seem to have a much easier time in a marriage than other people because of the trends of their particular sin nature. So you can't fall into the trap of looking at somebody else and saying, well, why can't our marriage be like them? I mean, that's as invalid as looking at somebody else and saying, why can't my sin nature uh, be like their sin nature? And just because the overt sins that you don't seem to see in somebody else's life doesn't mean that hidden, hidden away beyond your prying eyes are a host of imperceptible mental attitude sins that really plague that individual's Christian life. So don't put your eyes on other people. 
but focus on your own spiritual life and your own spiritual growth. We have to remember that marriage is a divine institution, and after salvation, marriage is a Christian institution for believers, and as a Christian institution, it is one of the most significant arenas in your life for the demonstration of God's grace and your testimony in the angelic conflict. Not only do we have an individual testimony in the angelic conflict, but for those who are married, there is a corporate testimony in the marriage in the angelic conflict. Remember, it was not only individual failures, and that was the key thing in the Garden of Eden, but there was a corporate failure in that original marriage. And so as two believers in Christian marriage are truly growing and maturing in the spiritual life, applying the principles of Ephesians chapter 5 under the filling of the Holy Spirit, as they grow in advance and their, their marriage takes on the qualities that are described in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, then there is a corporate testimony to the grace of God that is in contrast to the failure that occurred in the Garden of Eden. Now, in the process of, of the dance of marriage, there are specific rules and responsibilities laid down for each individual as well as for both partners. So I want to get briefly cover these rules. Now, the problem is, for some people, they want to know exactly what to do in each and every situation. And that is really a form of legalism. Because if you look at the Scriptures, they don't tell us exactly what to do in each and every situation in life. You have, you have more detail like that in the Mosaic Law. That's why, as we studied several years ago in Galatians, that the law was called a pedagogue. A pedag- it was, had a pedagogical function, like the uh, pedagogue in the Greek household that was training the young, uh, immature child so that every detail in life was dictated. But, in contrast to the laws, Scripture uses the analogy of moving from childhood to maturity over the, uh, the difference between the period of the law and the age of grace. During the age of grace, because we have a completed canon of Scripture in the church age, because we have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit and the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, the, in, instead of telling people exactly what to do in every detail in life, what we have are general rules and patterns and guidelines, and it's up to the individual believer under the creativity of the filling of the Holy Spirit and application of doctrine in his own life to, to take those principles and precepts and then apply them in their own life. So if you're not in the Word day in and day out going through that maturity process, you're not going to develop that pool of wisdom, what the Old Testament called chachma, which is, uh, whiz, which is, it has to do with developing a, a, um, a general frame of reference within which we can make decisions so that the issues that you face in many areas of life uh, don't involve questions of right or wrong, morality versus immorality. They're questions of wisdom. There's questions of uh, better versus worse. There's choices between that which is good and that which is best. And in order to make those kinds of decisions, you have to have wisdom in the soul, and that only comes from years of study of the Word of God. And uh, a good source of that is for many areas, especially in the home and family, 
is a study of the book of Proverbs. But in the New Testament, there are general overall commands that set the parameters, the boundaries, for all relationships, especially marriage. And so, first of all, I want to deal with these overall commands. And these commands are really mandates to all believers in all relationships, and especially in marriage. First of all, you have the command in John 13:34 and 35 that we are to love one another as Christ loved the church. And that mandate is directed from believer to believer. And so in a Christian marriage where you have two believers united in marriage, that is an overarching command for everything that goes on inside that marriage. It is to be characterized by love for one another as Christ loved the church. This is further developed, as we've seen in our study in 1 John, uh, by John in his epistle in 1 John 3.16, where we uh, find the principle, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life as a substitute for us, and that demonstrates that a key element in love is not putting our own personal agenda, desires, and wishes first, but putting the other person first and doing that which is best for the other person. Now, whenever you use a word like best or better or worse or worst, that implies a value judgment. Now, anytime you have a value judgment, you, you're, you're operating on a scale of values and priorities, and where do those come from? For me to make a decision about what's best in the life of somebody else means that I better be operating on an absolute scale of values from the Word of God or I will be making decisions based on a relative scale of values. Now, those are your only options. When you're making a decision about what is best for something, if you're operating on the Word of God, then you have an objective basis for determining what's best for something else or someone else because it's not oriented it's not coming out of a of, of a self-absorbed arrogant agenda but as soon as you get out of fellowship and you're not walking by the spirit and applying the word then when you make value judgments based on what's better or what's worse then what's going to be determining that that scale of values and those norms and standards is going to be a system that comes out of human viewpoint and a system that comes out of arrogance so in order for love to operate, there has to be maturity in the soul based on Bible doctrine where the norms and standards and the values in the soul are determined by divine viewpoint and not human viewpoint. So the first overall command has to do with loving one another as Christ loved the church. The second commandment is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So there is a mutual love and a mutual submission to one another. In other words, within marriage there is cooperation and not competition. Cooperation and not competition. It's not one person's will versus the other person's will, but is the two people submitting their will to one another and ultimately submitting their will to that of Scripture and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have the first command to love one another as Christ loved the church. Second, you have a, a, a part of, imperatival participle in Ephesians 5.21 that relates to uh, mutual submission to one another in the fear of God. And then, as we have seen in our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, 
the husband and the wife are to be mutually involved in sexual intimacy. This is another general rule that is found in Scripture addressing both husband and wife. Here we've, we've seen that the husband uh, has a duty to the wife. The wife has a duty to the husband. The wife's body is uh, under the authority of the husband, and the husband's body is under the authority of the wife. So there is a mutual submission. And then fourth, both husband and wife are to love each other unconditionally and impersonally. Both husband and wife are to love each other unconditionally and impersonally. And I remind you that impersonal is not some sort of cold, disjointed, uninvolved uh, love that simply lacks mental attitude sin. It simply means that it is not based on the person that you're loving. Because in a marriage you are, uh, I know I don't need to tell most of you this, but there might be a newlywed listening somewhere. They are married to somebody who has a sin nature, and when they get out of fellowship and in carnality, you never know which way that sin nature is going to go. And the way that sin nature trends in, when that person is in their uh, 20s may be completely different from the way it trends when they're in their 50s or 60s. Uh, people are, uh, are always sinners, and we always have to take that into account. So this is a love that is not based on that individual in terms of their attractiveness, either physically or spiritually. It is a love that is based on virtue in the soul, which comes from the standard of Jesus Christ and the character of God. The more you come to understand who Jesus Christ is and his character, the more you will come to understand what real love is all about. And without taking the time to reflect on what took place at the cross and the concept of, of love and how love is demonstrated on the cross, going back to 1 John 3.16, by this, that is what took place at the cross, we know love. The only way you can know love is by looking at the cross and using that as the standard by which you evaluate your own love relationships in terms of unconditional and impersonal love. From this we know that in a Christian marriage, this kind of love can only be the result of Bible doctrine in the soul and a Christ-like character that is produced by a consistent walk by the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, and Galatians 5, 21 and 22. Those are the overall commandments and rules that should govern every every marriage, in fact, every relationship. Then you have a second set of commands to the husband. A second set of commands to the husband. First of all, he is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. This is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. And there we see, or excuse me, verse... Um, Verse 25, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself as a substitute for her. So the love that the husbands are to have for wives is seen specifically by Paul as one application of the overall mandate of John 13, 34, and 35. So the first mandate to the husband is that he is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And in my experience, most of us men can 
uh, benefit from spending a good deal of time simply reflecting on the kind of love that Christ demonstrated on the cross, the various attributes that are part of that love, and then thinking about how those attributes are manifested in our relationships with our wives. We need to take some time, men, to think about that and how we reflect the love that Christ had for the church in our relationship with our wife. Second, the husband is commanded to honor his wife, and this is found in Second Peter chapter 3. In Second Peter chapter Chapter 3, there is in verse 7, the husband is to, to honor his wife. This is from the Greek word time, which is accurately translated honor. I think that's 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, husbands likewise uh, dwell with your wives with understanding. That is an understanding of doctrine. That is what is taught by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, 25 and following. Giving honor to the wife. Now, what does that mean to give honor? Well, to honor someone means to demonstrate respect for them. So husbands need to demonstrate respect for their wife. They need to value her as someone who is important, demonstrating that you hold her and her opinions and ideas in high regard. It means to admire someone. It means to give deference to someone. It means to respect them and to value them. So that's what it means to honor your wife in large things as well as small things. And one of the most important things you can do if you are a father and you have children is to demonstrate that and never at any time in front of the children demonstrate anything less than that, any kind of anger or disrespect. Never talk down to the wife because what you're doing by example then is teaching your children that that's really okay and that somehow the wife or or women are not to be valued or respected. So the first command is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Second, to honor your wife. Third, the husband is to be the leader in the home. He is the leader in the home in all areas, and primarily he is the spiritual leader in the home. That doesn't mean that you lead by simply delegating the spiritual leadership responsibilities to the wife and abdicating that responsibility. The husband is the leader in the home, and he is to demonstrate that leadership, not simply because he gets the family up and going on Sunday morning so they can get to church, but by arranging their priorities so that it is clear that getting to Bible class is important, but beyond that, he is to demonstrate in his own life the application of doctrine and the priority of doctrine by his own application. So he leads not only by what he does in terms of getting to Bible class and demonstrating that that's a priority, but in his own application of the word in his own life. Fourth, husbands are to treat their wives with gentleness, kindness, and respect. These are general, general attitudes that, and categories that reflect every area of life, no matter what the situation may be, no matter what the problem may be. And we all go through times in a marriage where there are conflicts, disagreements uh, over one thing or another. But the general guideline is that in working out these problems or difficulties or conflicts, they should be governed by grace orientation demonstrated through gentleness, kindness, respect, and humility. Further, Scripture teaches that husbands are to be forgiving 
and not to be resentful or embittered toward their wives. They're not to harbor mental attitude sins or resentment for past behavior or past failures. These are the general commands to the husband. Then third, we have the commands to the wives. Commands to the wives. Wives are not commanded significantly enough. Wives are not commanded to love their husbands in Scripture. They are instead commanded to respect, which is often translated fear, their husbands. Now, that's not fear in the sense of being afraid. That is the Greek word uh, uh, phobeo, which means to, uh, which has the idea of respect in certain situations, such as we're to fear the Lord. That doesn't mean that we're to be afraid of God, but we are to uh, respect his authority and his uh, role as the authority in our lives. So wives are commanded to respect their husbands. Now, respect is a response term, but it's no excuse to say that your husband isn't worthy of respect. See, these commands in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands, wives respect your husbands, these commands are not conditioned on the other person's behavior. If you look at the scriptures, it doesn't say uh, husbands love your wives when they are attractive, when they are slim, when they are uh, responding to you the way you think they ought to respond to you. Husbands, love your wives unconditionally, just as Christ loved the church. And Christ loved the church and died for the church when the church was in rebellion and antagonism and hostility with the Lord, when, when, the, when unbelievers were completely obnoxious to the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Lord died on the cross as a substitute for them. Furthermore, children are not told to honor their parents when they, de- when they deserve honor and respect. Uh, in the same way, wives are not told to, be, uh, to respect their husbands and be submissive to their husbands when they're wise, godly, humble leaders. You don't have those kinds of conditions there because the ultimate model is always the unconditional love that Jesus Christ demonstrated on the cross. So wives are commanded to respect their husbands. Secondly, they are commanded to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Notice there is a correlation in Ephesians 5.22 between the uh, authority orientation of the wife in the home and her authority orientation to her Lord. The scriptures make it clear that one is a mirror of the other. Now, that is a difficult thing to deal with in a personal life, especially in some marriages. But the scriptures make it clear that how an individual, whether it's a husband or a wife, how you as an individual respond to authority in general in life, whether it has to do with the workplace, whether it has to do with the government, whether it has to do with any other area in life, how you respond to human authorities is a mirror of how you respond to the authority of God in your life. And if you are the kind of person that constantly rebels against authority, has no respect for authority, then you are probably struggling with the authority of God in your life and the authority of Bible doctrine in your life. And so there is just this, while this is a general principle, Paul makes an application of that to wives and says that they are to submit to their husbands in the same way that they submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in their spiritual life and that there is a correlation between those two. As such, her uh, submission to the husband is going to involve thoughtfulness, 
kindness, and generosity. Notice, both husband and wife are expected to deal with one another out of a frame of reference of grace, orientation, humility, submission to one another. Nevertheless, there is a role structure and an authority structure within the home. Now, as a consequence of sin, as a consequence of sin, men and women have different tendencies. These are outlined in Genesis chapter 3 in the curse. There we're told in Genesis 3.15 that wives, uh, that, that uh, women would, uh, would have a desire for their husband. But that desire is not a positive desire. The word there in the Hebrew, teshuka, indicates a desire to usurp control. See, as a result of sin, one of the consequences of sin is that we all have problems with authority. And specifically, as a consequence of the sin and what took place in the fall, women are going to have a general tendency, some women more than others, but women as a whole are going to have a general tendency towards wanting to uh, run the home. And you often see this in situations where women have had bad experiences with male leadership. And then what happens is you you develop a culture, and there are various cultures around the world that are noted for a matriarchal society and women who basically want to run the run the home, and are very strong that way. and And the men tend to just distance themselves, and then they get involved in whatever it is they like to do. And what happens is you end up with two people who may be living together. They may stay in that marriage for most of their life, but they are not intimately involved with one another in the kind of love relationship that the, that the scriptures uh, portray. So there is a mutuality in the marriage, but there are role distinctions, and those role distinctions can only be achieved after salvation as part of sanctification and spiritual growth because they are reversing the trends of the sin nature that are outlined in Genesis chapter 3. Just as women have a tendency to want to usurp authority in the home, I think there is a clear indication in the Scriptures that the tendency on the part of the male is to uh, distance himself from his responsibilities in the home. And I derive that from the fact that in the curse, you have men are told that from that point on they are going to... uh, still be working the land, but now, and see, they were to work the land before the fall, but now there's going to be this antagonism, and it's going to be by the sweat of their brow. In other words, the responsibilities that man had before the fall are the same after the fall, but now they become toilsome and burdensome. And the tendency when anything is toilsome and burdensome is to not do it. And so the tendency is for women to want to run the home and men to let them. And only as a result of sanctification and under, under the filling of the Holy Spirit can those trends be reversed. So that, is the, the, that summarizes the overall commands to uh, husbands and wives is related to all believers. Commands to the husband. Third, commands to the wives. And then fourth, just as a summary... In order for Christian marriage to be successful, there needs to be communication, genuine, 
honest communication between husband and wife. That means they have to spend some time together. Now, there's tremendous pressures in our society that keep men and women from ever spending time together communicating. There are pressures from the job. There's pressures from various responsibilities in the home. The more children there are, the more of a distraction there can be in the home. In the last 20 or 30 years, we've seen a tremendous increase of women working outside of the home. I ran across some studies a number of years ago, some economic studies, that showed that at the turn of the last century, the beginning of the 20th century, if you took a family of four... They were probably living on the farm because most Americans still lived on the farm at the, you know, 102 years ago. And that family had a fairly prosperous existence living on the farm. And they all worked together to produce everything that was produced on the farm. In 1970, 70 years after that, it took the man working only 40 hours a week the wife at home, no wife working, the kids weren't working, they're just taking care of the house and having a good time. Most of us grew up in that kind of environment in the 50s and 60s, had a great uh, prosperity there. But it only took the man, one person working 40 hours a week, to produce the same lifestyle that that family of four worked together to produce on the farm 70 years earlier. But by 1985, to produce that same level, that same lifestyle, that same level of affluence that one man produced working 40 hours a week in 1970, by 1985, it took the man and the woman both working 60 hours a week to produce that same level of affluence that one man produced working 40 hours a week in 1970. Part of that reason was increase in taxes. Another part was that high inflation that we experienced at the end of the 70s. But there were all these social and economic factors that put a tremendous amount of pressure on the home so that now it becomes much more difficult to run the family. I mean, back when you had dad working 40 hours a week and he's home by 5 o'clock in the afternoon and mom's not doing anything all day except going to the grocery store, taking care of the house, watching the kids. Not that that's not a lot of work, but, but when she's, when, when it's much different when he's working 60 hours and she's also working 60 hours and then you put the kids in the housework and going to the grocery store and playing the meals on top of that, it's a totally different world. And so that's one of the reasons why in many doctrinal churches you didn't have a problem. Some of you remember this back in the 70s. You were having Bible class here two, three nights a week. And you wonder, now, how did we do that? Well, that's because, you know, most cases the man was working and the wife wasn't. But now you both have to work 60 hours a week or 40, 50 hours a week, and there's a tremendous effort there. And that brings up another issue. When you have the man working 40 hours a week and the wife's not working, you still have all those domestic chores and responsibilities to take care of, and yet if the wife isn't working outside the home, she can devote all of her attention to handling all those domestic chores. But men, once your wives start working outside the home and they're working 40 or 50 hours a week outside the home, you can't expect your wife to fulfill the same level of domestic responsibilities that you expect if she's not working. You cannot expect her to do all the grocery shopping, plan all the meals, do your laundry, 
clean the house, take care of the kids, and do all of that plus work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. That's where that teamwork concept comes in. That's where a little maturity comes in. And what you need to do is sit down and say, okay, we only have so much disposable time after we get through with our primary job responsibilities. I mean, let's face it, there's still only 24 hours in the day and seven days a week. And so what you have to do at that point is start looking at all the domestic responsibilities and domestic chores and decide who likes to do what and start dividing them up on an equitable basis so you don't have husbands coming home after they've worked 60 hours, worked 8, 10, 12 hours during a given day, come home and sit down and expect there to be food on the table. Your wife just got through working 10 or 12 hours that day too. So she wants to come home and sit down and have a meal on the table as well. And so then you get healthy choice or whatever, pop it in the microwave and go out to eat somewhere and then everybody starts expanding their waistline a little more, whatever it is. But in other words, what you have to do is deal with each other in terms of recognition of those responsibilities, time demands, everything else, and deal with one another in, in, uh, and treat one another with honor and respect. And you don't see men coming home after working 60 hours a week and expect their wife to still do everything. That's just absurd. It's selfish and it's childish. And it fits the pattern that you see in many American males, and that is what they really want in a wife is a homemaker and a mother, I mean a housekeeper and a mother, and and not someone who is a genuine wife under the categories of the Scripture, which is someone to share their life with, someone who is an assistant in the task of fulfilling the, their God-given responsibilities and roles as members of the royal family of God, royal priests who are to carry out some of the and, and attempt to carry out some of the original mandates to to uh, uh, rule the earth and to carry out their various ministries that God has assigned to them uh, in the spiritual life. So all of that is under a category of just summarizing the overall commands in marriage. Now in verse 6 and 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives some reasons about for not getting married. In verse 6 he says, But I say this as a concession. Now there are some people who have taken the this to refer to the next verse, but actually the this refers to what he says in verse 5. In verse 5 he says, Don't deprive one another except with consent for a time. And he's talking about depriving them of sex within marriage. Verse 5 is an, the concession... Now, verse 5 is expressed through that exception clause. That is his concession. Remember, what's happening in Corinth is they're saying, we're not going to have sex at all in marriage because that's going to make us more spiritual. And Paul is going to concede one point. If you're involved in prayer, then if on that basis you can, for a short period of time, abstain from sexual relationships in marriage. That's the concession of verse 6. And then he gives a further statement, an explanation in verse 7, where he says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Now in this verse, Paul is not commanding celibacy. But he is simply articulating the principle that celibacy can be preferable 
simply because it allows the person who is single to devote more of his time and more of his life to ministry in the local church and in fulfilling God's plan for his life. Paul here is simply expressing a general standard. He is not expressing a mandate to celibacy and being single. He recognizes this in the second part of the verse where he says, However, each man has his own gift. Everyone's different. Now, the word here for gift is charismata, which is the same word that's used for spiritual gift over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But it's not using it in the sense of a spiritual gift here. It is simply recognizing that God has allowed some people to be able to live in a single state. So Paul is not saying that single is a better state in and of itself. He's not saying that being single is uh, has a higher spiritual value than being married. He is simply saying that it allows the individual to do more in terms of service to the body of Christ than if he is married or has children. However, he's not denigrating being married or having children. In fact, most pastors are married, should be married, and should have children. Children are a positive thing in the Scriptures, and we see this in, from the Old Testament. In Psalm 127.3, we have the principle, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior. There's our simile, like. Always expresses a similar, simile. So children... And the number of children are compared to arrows in the hands of a warrior. What's the function of an arrow in the hand of a warrior? It's with that arrow that he defeats the enemy. He goes out and he has an impact against the enemy. Now we take that and apply that to the general principle that we are involved in a war, in an invisible war as, as believers against the cosmic system. So when the in the Christian home, when you have children, as you teach those children doctrine, as they grow up and they mature and you, you train them and prepare them, then you send them out into the world, as it were, like a weapon against the world system. You influence the enemy's system by your children. That is a fantastic Ministry, and that is how Christian parents need to, as a sort of an overall philosophy for child raising. You are raising children, believers, to go out into the world and have a fantastic impact. So if you start off and there's a, there's the husband and the wife, the mom and the dad, and they have five or six children, then they send, the, I'm not advocating five or six children, I'm not advocating any number, but if you have the number of children that you have are then sent out into the world to have an impact on that world. And I can think of past generations, people like John and Charles Wesley. Now, the Wesleys had a number of children. I don't remember how many, but it was up into the teens. And, of course, back in the mid-1700s, there was a certain higher level of infant mortality, so many many uh, couples had numerous children. The past generations, they had many children. I remember one lady in my first church was in her 70s, and she was the 15th of 19 children in her family. So uh, some of you women are wincing at that, but... That was standard in generations gone by, and they had tremendous impact. And 
and uh, Susanna Wesley, who was the mother of John and Charles Wesley, would uh, prayed for her children every day, and she read stories to them every day and told them stories about missionaries every day and about people around the world who needed to hear the gospel. And she was influencing her children and giving them a view of the world that needed to hear the gospel. And she produced two sons. Many of her children were also very involved in Christian work and ministry, but two sons who had a tremendous worldwide impact, John and Charles Wesley. In fact, today we still sing some of the hymns that they wrote. And you would think that a person who had 15 or 16 children would have difficulty finding time to be alone with the Lord and to pray. And Susanna Wesley had a very uh, interesting and unique way of indicating that it was a time for everybody to leave her alone. Of course, remember back in those days, women wore numerous petticoats. And so when she wanted to spend some time alone in prayer, she would just pull her dress up over her head. So you would know that when uh, she was sitting in the corner with her dress over her head, that uh, she was in prayer and it was time to leave mom alone for a while. But that would also be a tremendous example to her children that, that mom was spending time in prayer and reading her Bible and making her own spiritual life something of a priority. So... Paul is not in any way reducing the significance or the impact of marriage or the significant and impact of having children. For most people, including most pastors and missionaries, marriage is a wonderful blessing and is something that is important for them in carrying out and fulfilling God's uh, mandate for them and God's and the ministry that God has assigned to them. On the other hand, there are some who have been gifted by God with celibacy. This means that this is someone who is not constantly battling libido, that they do not have a constant uh, temptation in the area of sex, and uh, they are able to live their life and remain single without uh, sexual pressure or sexual lust entering into the equation and becoming a problem for them. So in this verse, Paul is expressing that he is not only single, but that he has this gift and ability, that he is not seeking a wife, he's not looking for companionship, and he is able to focus all of his energies on his ministry. Unlike so many who start looking for a wife or a husband as soon as they can, because many people think that they need to be married in order to be happy, that they need to have a spouse or they need to have someone in their life. But that's a reason that so many are married is because, I mean, so many are miserable is because they jumped into that marriage too quickly thinking that they had to get married in order to be happy and in order to uh, go through life. There's also the fact of peer pressure that comes along around depending on where you are in the country. Some places it's as young as 16 or 17. Other places it's a little later. But that you ha need to have someone in your life. You need to have a boyfriend. You need to have a girlfriend. And then as you get a little older, there's the, the peer pressure that you need to, to get married. And there's a very subtle peer pressure that you see in many seminaries that a man just needs to be married because, after all, nobody, no church is going to want you as a pastor if you're not married. And that is unfortunately true. And it does produce an environment where there is a subtle pressure in many Bible colleges and seminaries for people to get married. And that's one reason you 
uh, have marriage problems among pastors later on in life is because they got married too quickly and under that unseen pressure. Always remember the principle that it's better to be single than stupid. You know, somebody needs to embroider that on a on a pillow, and it would have great sales value. It's better to be single than stupid. And so many people get the idea that they just have to have someone in their life. But until you get to the point where you can relax and be comfortable alone, you're you're never going to be able to fully be all that you can be in a marriage. Because you have to be comfortable in your own skin, comfortable with yourself, because marriage is not a solution to loneliness. In fact, there are many people in miserable marriages who have much greater loneliness than people who are living alone. So Paul is emphasizing the fact that celibacy does have a value, but it is not superior to marriage. It just depends on how God has gifted the individual. All he is emphasizing is that the person who is single and celibate has more time, energy, and opportunity to serve the Lord. Now, one caveat here is if you're married to someone who has a gift of pastor, teacher, or evangelist, somebody who is in uh, full-time professional, that is, we're all in full-time ministry, but someone who is in professional ministry, that individual, that man, will always have a struggle with priorities. But nevertheless, the Christian pastor, the evangelist, the missionary, still needs to emphasize his family and marriage responsibilities. That's part of the example that he demonstrates as a, uh, as a leader in the, in the royal family of God. So that, we want to look at some of the sacrifices that are made by a person who is married and in full-time professional service for the Lord. First of all, he's going to be distracted because he has to spend a certain amount of time that is consumed in making a marriage successful. That's true for everyone. It takes time to make a marriage successful. It also takes two to make a marriage successful and one to destroy a marriage. But a pastor teacher or a missionary or an evangelist who is in professional service needs to spend time with their spouse. They have to spend time to talk with their spouse, communicate to them, listen to them. And I'm always amazed at the poor communication that takes place in most marriages. I wonder what people talk about or if if husbands and wives ever really just have the time to sit around the breakfast table or dinner table or have a cup of coffee in the evening or a glass of tea or whatever and just talk about their days and what each one did and and how things are going in their life. That's crucial to have those kinds of relaxed times where you talk to each other and find out what's going on. Secondly, there's also time involved in training children. If you're a pastor, if you're a an evangelist or missionary, and you have children, then a certain amount of time is going to have to go into to uh, child raising. And that's important, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I saw someone make a comment on, a, on an ordination exam one time, well, to the effect that, well, this person is married and has several children, so that's obviously, obviously going to be a problem that they're going to have to deal with in the ministry, and they're going to have to figure out how to sacrifice to be a pastor. Now, that is a completely wrong-headed idea about the ministry. See, one of the ways in which a pastor 
leads is through the example in his own marriage and in his own family. And he has to be able to demonstrate that under the same pressures of everybody else, that he's able to apply doctrine in the realm of his marriage and family. Third, there's going to be time consumed in providing uh, materially for the family. And this primarily involves not just somebody in professional Christian service, but for any husband, there's time consumed in providing materially for the family. You can't, you have to balance the priorities of being a husband and a father with your job. And often, you know, that's a conflict. Uh, your work cannot suffer, and sometimes today th- there's a tremendous economic pressure put on a family because the husband has to work 60 or 70 hours a week, sometimes even more, and the more that's demanded of him at work, the less energy there is for him to fulfill his responsibilities as a husband and a father. Fourth, there needs to be time for serving the Lord, time for individual ministry, whatever that may be in terms of your full-time Christian service, time for prayer, time for uh, going to prayer meeting, time for doctrine, time to think about what you've been studying in doctrine. The Lord must not be neglected in your life. So all of that, part of the time constraints that are put on any individual and can be a distraction from marriage, but marriage has to be kept as a priority. Then Paul gets into various reasons for, for staying single. In verse 8, he says, But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. Now this is a crucial verse for understanding what Paul is saying in the rest of this chapter. This is crucial. A failure to understand this verse in terms of its control is sort of a topic sentence, a thesis statement, is is a reason you can get into some things in the middle of this, this chapter and take them completely out of context. And if we have time, we'll get to, to part one, one of these this morning. If not, we'll have to come back and review this next time. I say to the unmarried, that is, the term unmarried is the Greek word agamas. And the A at the beginning is the alpha privative, which has the idea of un or not. It is the prefix of negation, much like the English prefix un. And here it refers to unmarried and includes uh, those who are single as well as those who are divorced. And the principle that Paul is laying down here is the principle of remaining in the status quo, remaining as you are. That is a governing idea of Paul's throughout this chapter, is that you need to stay in whatever condition you're in right now. But that's not an absolute. He's saying that's just the, that's the, in his opinion, that's the best choice. And remember, in his opinion, he is expressing this under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. But this is not an absolute. It is a relative value. It is better to stay as you are. If you are unmarried, stay single. If you're married, stay married. He will say that later on in the chapter. But here he says, I say to the unmarried, that is, divorced or single, and to widows, that it's good for them to remain even as I am. But he goes on in verse 9 to say, But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. So there's nothing wrong 
with getting married, and he says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, if you look further down into verse, let's see where we are. Um, verse 26, you're going to see that, that he is actually framing everything from this verse down to verses uh, 26 to 28 with the same idea. He's emphasizing this principle of staying as you are, but under certain circumstances, it's not wrong to change that. For example, he says in verse 26, I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it's good for a man to remain as he is. He, he's sta- st- restating that same principle. Are you bound to a wife, that is? Are you married? Do not seek to be loose, that is, don't seek to be divorced. Are you loosed or divorced from a wife? Then don't seek a wife. But even if you do marry, so there he's applying the principle that if you're single or if you're divorced, even if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And that's the same thing he's stating in verses 8 and 9, that it's preferable to stay as you are, but some of you can't do that. If you're single or you're divorced, you need to remarry, and if you do, you haven't sinned. So he's he's going to emphasize the fact that it's better to stay single, but he recognizes the reality that it is sometimes better uh, for many people to go ahead and get married because then they won't have the distraction of sexual temptation and sexual pressure. So he addresses this in verse 8 to the unmarried, that is, those who are either single or divorced, and to widows. And the principle is it's good for them if they remain, and there's our word minnow, which John uses in a technical theological sense, and here Paul just uses in its normal sense of staying in the present condition. So if you're single, and when you're single, single people often uh, often are uh, tested by being by loneliness, not having someone to spend time with, not having someone to uh, be a companion with them in life. Don't talk yourself into getting married. Don't talk to yourself into getting married because of money, loneliness, compa- uh, companionship, or any other benefits. That applies to older men as well as younger men and women. Often those who have been married for some time and then lose their spouse either through divorce or, or through, through death uh, want to fill that void very rapidly. They feel the pangs of loneliness much more than those who were never married, and so often they run out and they get married uh, too quickly. And that's why you always have to remember the principle it's better to be single than stupid. Well, we're about out of time, so we won't get to the seven reasons to not get married until next time. But we'll start with that, and then we'll go into what the Bible teaches about selecting a lifetime partner. So we'll get into those two areas uh, next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to reflect on what you teach us about marriage and family, that these are two divine uh, are two. Uh, divine institutions established for the entire human race, but they take on a particularly important sense as Christians. They become Christian institutions with specific commands in the New Testament for those who are believers. Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, honestly see our own lives in the light of your word and to have the courage to respond to these uh, absolute principles that we have studied, that we may uh, apply them consistently in our own lives. 
Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. The only way to solve the sin problem was taken by Jesus Christ on the cross. There he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins so that the issue is no longer our sin. The issue is Jesus Christ. For salvation, the only thing that matters is your relationship to Jesus Christ, which is expressed in the Scriptures by the terms believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, believe that he died on the cross, paid the penalty for your sins, and that, that he and he alone provides the only solution to salvation. It's not based on your works. It's not based on uh, any kind of religious activity. It's not based on ritual. It is based on the completed and finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So right now, right where you sit, you can make your eternal destiny sure and certain. All you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and you are instantly regenerated. You receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're justified, and you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would help all of us to understand these things and that they might continuously impact our own thinking and the way we relate to one another because ultimately it is all grounded on a complete understanding of what Christ did for us on the cross. We, paid, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.